0: And we are called to be a kingdom of priests unto our God our nakedness should not be appearing
1: and when we get
0: in the flesh and we stop walking in the righteousness of Christ and we're not walking worthy of our calling and we give a bunch of flesh to people we say we've got the truth but they're just going I see just a bunch of nastiness stuff I never wanted to see
1: in love.
0: so let's do things Jesus' way
1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. We have seen God give the children of Israel His moral law and their civil law, revealing His holiness and love to all people. For the past few chapters, God has been giving Moses the ceremonial laws. This includes how they were to worship, where they were to worship, And who would be responsible for administering the sacrifices and rituals that all points to God's righteousness and grace? We left off with the garments that the priests were to wear for service. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 28 verse 36.
0: Verse 36, And you shall make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the miter, upon the forefront of the miter it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So we've got the blue robe, which is kind of the dominant piece in the garments. On top of that, he would put the ephod with the breastplate on the outside of that. Now we get to the mitre, which the word mitre, it just means like a turban. But it mentions before he gets to the turban, it says, you shall make a plate of pure gold engrave upon it. So an engraved metal plaque, it says, and you're going to engrave on this metal plaque like the engravings of a signet ring. You're going to carve it in just like a signet ring would be made. And it's going to say, holiness, to the Lord, And then you shall put it on blue lace. You'll make this golden plaque and you attach it to blue lace. And then that's how you would tie it to the turban. The blue lace would be tied and it would secure the turban to your head with this golden plaque on the front. And it was written on, it was holiness unto the Lord. What's interesting here is it mentions that it shall be upon Aaron's forehead that he may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. See, when Israel brought their offerings to God, and we'll learn about that in Leviticus, he's mentioned them here, but we haven't gotten into what they are yet. We'll get into that in Leviticus, which probably seems like light years away right now. He reminds Aaron here and Moses, they're still sinners. When they bring their offering, they're not all of a sudden good people. They're not making up for it and then being righteous before God. They're bringing offerings to him as a sinner people. And so what they're bringing to God, even though the offering might be pure and the animal pure, we'll learn about that when we get to the offerings, the, they're not. And so there's a sense where it taints the offering. Because of that, how could a holy God accept their offerings? Even if the offering was pure, it's being offered by someone who isn't. How could they accept them? Well, of course, only by grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor, right? It's unmerited favor. We have not earned it, but God gives it to us as a gift. The very nature of the word grace comes from the word that means gift. The idea is is that to accept the people's offerings, God had to do it by grace. Israel had to be seen as holy, even though they weren't perfect. They had to be seen as holy, even though they weren't. So the high priest would wear this plaque upon his turban so that the Lord would see holiness, that he would not be reminded of their sin, but he'd be reminded of their grace, that he had given them his holiness, given them his righteousness. You know, it's interesting, and I plan to mention this, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, it talks about who we are in Christ now. It says, But of him are you in. This is verse 30 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, if you're taking notes. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That word sanctification means holiness. So in Christ, I am made holy. I'm seen as holy. There's this idea going on around now. It's not a new idea. It's an old idea rehashed. That Christians, when the Bible talks about us being perfect, it means that we should never sin. And there are people now going around claiming they don't ever sin. Now, my Bible in 1 John says that if we say we don't sin, not we're a liar. The Bible says if we have, say we have not sinned, we're a liar and we do not practice the truth. The Bible says if we say we don't sin, that we make him a liar and his word is not true. I would prefer not to do that. <laughs> but this is a common thing. And they use verses that talk about how we're to be perfect and we are perfect in him. And one of the things that traditionally what Christianity has explained is that we're perfect in him. He sees us that way. You know What I'm hearing now from pulpits is people are saying, no, 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 no. This is not true. You are really practically actually perfect. And if you aren't, then you're not really saved. Now, that's a pretty heavy trip to lay on somebody, first off. And I know the heart behind it, the heart behind it is what they're hearing is the opposite side of the spectrum where people are just going, yeah, you know, I, I don't ever get it right. I don't, I'm not changing at all. And praise God, he's gracious. No, grace is not a license to sin. We know that. But the reason I need continual grace is because I'm not there yet. I'm perfect in his sight. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that we are made of him. I'm not that way, but he gives it to me, his righteousness, his sanctification, holiness. God had been doing that from the very beginning. He would see holiness even though they weren't completely holy. And so that would be what the Lord would see. And yet, what kept that symbol of holiness tied to his turban? The blue cord of grace, right? that was what made them holy. This plaque allowed him to bring the offerings of a sinful people to a holy God in an acceptable way. Because God would be reminded when he would see the blue lace and the ribbon tying that, that plaque there, be reminded that by his grace, he was seeing his people as holy. I imagine you could probably already draw the parallels to yourself and to Jesus. So, how does this point to Jesus? Well, what's fascinating is that unlike Aaron and his descendants, who only had the appearance of being holy, Jesus is holy. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7 with me. I love this. See, because Jesus was holy, not just appeared holy, he doesn't have to keep bringing the offerings of sinners. He brought his own offering once and for all that fully satisfied God's righteous demands. Hebrews 7, verse 26. For such a high priest became us or was fitting for us. This is what we needed. Who is holy, harmless, the, the phrase there means innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, because he didn't have any, and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. See, the high priest under Aaron and his descendants, they would have to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people daily. Daily but not so with Jesus. He did this once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men the high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law or after the law, it makes the son who is consecrated as a high priest, in other words, forevermore. We don't need any more high priests. Jesus is our great high priest. And as you can imagine, that's hinting at how he can be our great high priest, which we'll get to later. This also served Israel, though, to be a reminder to them that they were to be a holy people. And that same truth applies to us. I think, you know, in a greater way, even than it did to Israel, because we've been redeemed with a better offering. Look at first Peter chapter one with me. You know, I, I've been doing this a long time. So you hear it all. And on the opposite side of that spectrum, I'll hear sometimes people say, well, we'll, you know, we're under grace. You know, why do you keep telling me about how we need to be obedient? We need to, you know, do these things that God wants us to do. We're under grace, man. You know, I'm not saved by being obedient. Yeah. You're not under law anymore. But grace is so much more powerful than law. And then there's a sense where I think it's even stricter than the law. And here's why. First Peter chapter 1. Actually, i just read from verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves, not allowing yourself to be conformed into the mold, it says, of the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation, conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, if you pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, uh, for, uh, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, As of a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, we've received a greater sacrifice, a greater redemption. And as such, it has a greater responsibility. You know, let's be holy because our God has given us his holiness. He is holy as well. Let's walk in his footsteps. So that's the mitre back in Exodus 28. Verse 39, we get to the, the final batch of garments here. Now we get to the coat. This would be the undershirt or tunic that would go underneath the robe. And you shall embroider the coat of fine linen, and you shall make the miter of fine linen, and you shall make the girdle of needlework. The girdle would be the sash that would go around it. And for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats, and you shall make for them girdles and bonnets shall you make for them for glory and for beauty. They would have different uh, hats. They would not have a turban in the same way that the high priest would have. They would just have these little bonnets that would be like little hats. They would be less ornate, so to speak. But the undershirt or the tunic, again, you would see all the blue on the outside, the robe, and then the ephod on top of it with all its color. But underneath the part that you wouldn't see would be the fine linen, which speaks of righteousness, now, what makes grace possible, of course, is Jesus' perfect life, one that made him an acceptable sacrifice to us. So we see grace, but the price that was paid to give us that grace was the righteousness of Christ dying on the cross for us when he didn't deserve it. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, so we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, the rest of the priests got these same undergarments, these same undershirts as well. That's what the coat, and it says coat. We think of a coat on the outside, but this is an undergarment. So, but the rest of the priests got these too, you know, because they were not to uh, be there in their own righteousness. They were to be there in the righteousness of the Lord. And, you know, Jesus has made us a kingdom of priests, according to Revelation 1, 6, because we've been accepted in his righteousness we're to walk worthy of our calling. Like Jesus, our lives are to glorify God and show his beauty to a world that's in darkness. And then in verse 41, that was the undershirt. Now in verse 41, we get to the underwear, the underpants. And you shall put upon Aaron, your brother, and his sons, verse 41, put them upon him, and you shall anoint them, and consecrate them, and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. We'll get to that in chapter 29 and you shall make them linen breeches or pant-like trousers. They're kind of like long pairs of boxers, you know, kind of like, uh, what, are those, what are those long shorts that you girls wear? What are they called? They come like they're capris, right? These were very manly capris, you know, so, and, but, you know, but under, under things, you know, so, yeah, I'm giving you all sorts of images, so. According to Josephus, they would reach down to the ankles. It says here that you shall make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness. From the loins, even unto the thighs, they shall reach. And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come into the tabernacle of the congregation or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they do not bear iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto him and his seed after him. So they had to wear the undergarments that would not extend. They would not be exposed. Like they would go walking up and to, to serve, they would not be exposed in any way when you'd be looking up. Um, when Solomon built his temple, the altar is, is massive and you, you climb up quite a few steps to get to the top. And if you got nothing under there, you're, you're showing everything to everybody. The Lord says, I'll have none of that in my ministry. You might be laughing and go, Why are we talking about holy underwear? But the reason we're talking about this is because this would be in stark contrast to the pagan priests who almost never wore any undergarments. And the reason they didn't is because of the sensual nature of their rituals. When they would do their worship rites, they were often accompanied by sexual activity and all sorts of lasciviousness. And there was to be none of that in the worship of God. Today, there is a temptation to mingle sensuality with the worship of God, to bring the flesh as an offering. Before the throne, our flesh will never be acceptable to God. We must be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, is it a wonder when we live in the day that we do that the last day's church of Laodicea is mentioned as thinking they're clothed when they're really naked? In Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, the Lord speaks to them this word, this church that thought they were fine, but they weren't. And he says to them, Unto the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, These things says the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Some people have said the Lord either wants you to be all for him or all against him. That's absurd. Why would God want anybody to be against him? No, no, no. The idea of being either hot or cold is that depending upon the day, depending upon the activity you're doing, depending upon the circumstances of life, hot and cold can both be good. Listen, my kids today, we went out to lunch, and for whatever crazy reason, they wanted hot chocolate. I'm like, it's 9,000 degrees out. Who wants hot chocolate? My kids. I didn't want any part of that because I know better. (laughs) (laughs) On that day, this day, when it was muggy and rainy and wet, I wanted a really cold drink. It was refreshing. It was relaxing. It was exactly what I needed. However, when we go out and we do Christmas caroling on most occasions... We have hot chocolate here because it's usually freezing outside for us Floridians. You know, if you're visiting in, we understand we have no guts and no skin. It's okay. We're, we're used to it. So we do drink hot chocolate because at that time it warms you up and it feels good, right? The Lord's just saying, I want you to be refreshing. What's the worst thing you can get on either a hot or a cold day? Something that's lukewarm. Because what do you want to do? Puh, you just want to spit it out. And the Lord says, I wish that you were refreshing. So then because you are lukewarm, in other words, you're not alive in your relationship with me. Because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. And here's why, here's why they're lukewarm. They're not in a living relationship with him. Why their faith in a sense, their life with Christ is dead because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich and white clothing that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. Listen, we are called to be a kingdom of priests unto our God our nakedness should not be appearing. And when we get in the flesh and we stop walking in the righteousness of Christ and we're not walking worthy of our calling and we give a bunch of flesh to people, we'd say we've got the truth, but they're just going, I see just a bunch of nastiness, stuff I never wanted to see. So let's do things Jesus' way, you know? He loves us so much. even loved that church of Laodicea and he counseled them. He says, take this from me so that you won't be this way anymore. You know, his grace is sufficient for us and our high priest has made the way clear. So let's come his way. Let's live his way. You might be thinking, Will, you made it very clear that the priesthood had to come from the family of Aaron. Jesus is not from the family of Aaron. How can he be our high priest? He can't be. It's impossible. It goes against the word. Well, you're partially right. Jesus is not a high priest after the order of Levi. Or after Aaron. He is a high priest from a different order. Turn to Psalm 110 with me. It says at the title, a Psalm of David. If you know your Jewish history, David comes quite a bit after Moses and Aaron, long after Moses and Aaron. So this is written after the Levitical priesthood has been established in place for many, many, many years. And out of the blue, we get this statement from the Psalmist David, a very amazing prophecy. The Lord, Jehovah, by the way, if you have a King James Bible, at least if you have a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's how you know it's Jehovah or Yahweh. When you get to the other one, where just capital and everything else is a lowercase, that's the word Adonai in the Hebrew. That's how you know the difference. All capitals is Jehovah, and then just one capital L is Adonai. They're very different because the word Adonai can be applied to any boss or any master. But Jehovah, of course, only refers to the Lord. So the Lord, Jehovah, said unto My Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, Jehovah, shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of your enemies. Now, this verse was quoted by Jesus himself to refer to the Messiah and to refer to him. It's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1 as referring to Jesus. So we know this is a prophecy of the Messiah. So let's go here to verse 3. Thy people shall be willing in the day of your power in the beauty of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord, Jehovah, has sworn and will not repent. He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Levi, Melchizedek. Yeah, we could spend like three weeks just on that dude. He makes three appearances in the Bible, one personally and then two references. He makes the appearance in Genesis after Abraham defeats all of the armies of Ketolamer and all his allies, and he rescues Lot and all the king of Sodom and all the people rescues them. And they come back in. It says that there met him Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, the king of Salem and the priest of righteousness. And he comes to meet him and then Abraham brings him tithes. And then Melchizedek offers Abraham bread and wine. And then he's gone. We don't know who he is. Then he makes an appearance here, a reference to him that there's a priesthood, an order of priesthood, an order of priesthood after a Melchizedek and Jesus or the Messiah will be part of that order. And then of course, in Hebrews, he's mentioned all throughout the book as Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, he is our high priest. Turn to Hebrews chapter seven with me. Now, if you want to know more about this Melchizedek guy, I encourage you, read the account in Genesis, Psalm 110, and read the book of Hebrews, and you'll get a mouthful. You'll get plenty to chew on that you can really dig in. Even Paul says, this is not milk, this is meat. So if you want to do a really good study, learn about Melchizedek, dive into that in the Word. But I just want to sum it up here in chapter 7 of Hebrews, so you can understand how Jesus can be our great high priest. Verse one of Hebrews seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a 10th part, a tithe of all. First being, this is referring to Melchizedek, he's first being by interpretation, king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means, king of righteousness. And after that also, king of Salem, which means Salem or Shalom means peace, which means king of peace. Check this dude out. It says he's without father, without mother, without descent or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, he abides a priest continually. This guy comes out of nowhere. We know nothing about him. We have no genealogy from him. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know when he was born. We don't know when he died. We know nothing about him except he came into the scene and Abraham paid him tithes and he blessed Abraham. And so we see here that Jesus is made like unto him. There are those like myself who believe that Jesus is Melchizedek. I realize there are good arguments for the opposite of that. That's fine. It's not the most important thing. Verse four, consider how great this man was unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the 10th of the spoils. You can't get bigger than Abraham in Judaism, but Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levites, now the Levitical priesthood, who received the office of the priesthood, They have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is, of their brethren, though they came from the loins of Abraham. Abraham's greater than them. But he whose descent is not counted, from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So what he's establishing is Melchizedek is superior to Abraham and the Levitical priesthood, okay? And here, men that die receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he he still lives. That's why I believe this is referring to Jesus. And if I may say so, he says, Levi also, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Therefore, if perfection or if completion were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need was there for another priest that should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? He says, why does God prophesy of another order if Levi would have brought us to completion? For he of whom, verse 13, these things are spoken, pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar, no man served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And yet it is far more evident for that after the similitude or likeness of Melchizedek, there has to come another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest, how long? Forever after the order of Melchizedek. For, or therefore, There is truly a disannulling of the commandment going beforehand, the first commandment, the old covenant, for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope. This is what Jesus brought us. The bringing in of a better hope did by the which we can draw near unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this one with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue because they died. But this man, because he continues forever, he has an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. And in light of that, why would you ever want to go back to the Levitical priesthood? I mean, after you read that, if you you remember we were talking about the the Christians in Hebrews, they were Jewish Christians who were thinking going back to Judaism. And after Paul says that, how could you even think of that? We don't need the Levitical priesthood anymore. We have a high priest from a different order who never dies and never fails. He lived a better life. He offered a better sacrifice and therefore we have a better arrangement with God. Truly, The shadow is eclipsed by the substance. And so guys, this is why we must never go back to the Old Testament priestly system. I am not your priest. No leadership here is your priest, all right? We believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers, that we all can go straight to God, that there's one mediator between God and man, even our great high priest, Jesus Christ the righteous, amen? We are a kingdom of priests under our great high priest and we've been called to represent him before the people and to represent the people to him. Let's do it, all right? Let's all stand. Lord, in the book of Hebrews, we also read that Moses was a faithful servant in all his house. You were a faithful servant unto your father. And Lord, we want to be faithful servants unto you as well. We recognize tonight that we are your priests. Lord, we have been called by you, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, called out of darkness into this marvelous light. But not after the order of Levi, not after an inferior covenant, Lord. We are called to spread this awesome news that you have a better sacrifice, a better way, a better deal, that we can be saved to the uttermost. Thank you for saving us to the uttermost, Lord. Help us to go out and to share that great news with the people we interact with in our lives. Fill us with your Spirit so we might do so. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name.
1: Amen. Jesus is our high priest. He goes before us to God and intercedes on our behalf. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant and is a better high priest. He lived in sinless perfection, and yet took the penalty that we owed upon Himself, removing sin's power and the very guilt of sin. We can have true redemption and freedom. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, don't be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today.